I applied for the job at Deloitte and uh, I was very pleased I got the interview. At the, the last exercise of the day, which was you were put into a room with all the other candidates around a sort of boardroom table and you were given a, a problem statement and then the debate started. And so I let the argument run for about you know, one minute. So what I did while everyone's watching was I stood up, I grabbed one of the, the board markers and pens on the table. I walked to the front of the room. I said, thank you, John, that's a great idea. Let me write that down. Now, Jill, what's, what's your suggestion on that? So my strategy was to speak as a leader by holding the pen. I left the building, I remember vividly, I had to catch the train back home. Just about to board the train and my phone rang. A man's voice, he said, uh, hello, Samar. I'm like, yes. He said, oh, I'm, I'm the lead partner. I was in the room with you this afternoon. I was like, oh, yes, uh, thank you. How are you? Said, yes, I'd like to offer you the role immediately. Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast, where you learn how to speak fearlessly on stage, on camera, and in person. I'm Nasheen, a leadership communications coach from the Fortune 500 world. And on Speak as a Leader, I talk to leaders from corporate giants like Amazon and Google, to startup founders, visionaries, TEDx speakers, and even leaders who have worked at the Pentagon. You will get to know how these leaders learned the art and science of speaking fearlessly on any stage. Let's get started. Samar Farooqi is the VP of Strategy, Cloud Innovation, and Business Development at SAP. He is one of those rare people in the corporate world who is fully invested in building his personal brand through speaking. He has the kind of resume that you could only build in your dreams. Before SAP, he's worked at IBM, KPMG, and Deloitte. So, of course, we talk about how leadership works at all these companies that sometimes seem like black boxes and what lessons Samar has learned to become and to speak as a more impactful leader. Hi, Samar. Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast. I am delighted that you joined us and I am excited for our conversation. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. So you have had a fascinating journey. You have worked at some of the companies that people dream about working at. You've worked at Deloitte, KPMG, IBM, Philips, and now SAP. So I would love for you to tell us about your journey so far, but I have one additional challenge for you. I would love for you to tell us one thing that you learned at each of these companies and one thing that you would change if you could. Mm, it's an interesting question. Um, so yes, you're quite right. I've had an interesting career journey. I think it started originally, you know, for me following a career in technology and that's how I ended up in these companies and you know, studying computer science and then management and following that through and taking opportunities uh, as they came up. And, you know, along that, that journey, you know, following technology into industry, first of all, you know, with, with Philips, for example, and that was uh, exciting in the sense that, you know, what I was interested in was making technology work in terms of solving problems for business. So some people are attracted to the bits and the bytes and cutting code, but I was always interested in the, the join between 
business and technology and how you translate that you know, into a plan of action. You want to apply this technology to solve a problem. So, you know, a lesson learned at Philips, for example, which you know, is a great longstanding company. I don't think many people know, you know, it was founded in the 1800s, you know, and it was originally a light bulb factory uh, that grew and grew. You know, one of the lessons from an organization like that was technology is part of their DNA, of course. There's always been leading in, for example, electronics, but then also having a set of social responsibility. They really took to heart the importance of looking after their employees, their customers, sustainability, and so on. And this was baked into the DNA from, from the very beginning. So you really felt part of a family. And that was one of my formative experiences. Uh, and so from there, I went to, to Deloitte, then later KPMG. And there I was able to apply those insights of working in a industrial manufacturing company, consumer products company, using technology to work with a, a wide variety of customers in similar domains. And so the lesson learned there, you know, picking up was uh, you know, how to apply your experience in different scenarios and be able to relate that to, to the customer situation. Because in consulting, what else are you selling? Right? 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you're selling ideas, you're selling value, you're selling thoughts, you're selling insight. So to convert insight and advice into cash requires you to have trust. And so it's not just the brand that, yes, you, you happen to represent this well-known brand, be it KPMG, Deloitte, or whomsoever, which carries a certain cachet. But regardless, when you are in the room with the client uh, or with their teams working on a problem, you have to be credible. Amazing. I gave you a really tough question to start off with because you had to, you know, distill. It's it's more than 15 years of experience that you've had at this point, I believe, into a few minutes. So thank you for that. And I love that it leads us into the core of the podcast, really, because it's called Speak as a Leader. And mm -hmm. this is what I'm fascinated by, how leaders speak and what impact does it have and something that both that you and I have in common is that we've both worked in companies with rich legacies, with rich histories. Uh, I was in Procter and Gamble, and that was also founded in the 1800s. And when you become a part of companies like that, you're stepping into a system where what it means to be a leader and what it means to speak as a leader is already very well defined at BNG, for example, speaking as a leader meant speaking with clarity, speaking with transparency and honesty, and taking feedback from the team, but ultimately being accountable for your words and your project and your team. So something I'm interested in knowing, especially because you've worked not just at one company or been a part of one culture, but you've gone from culture to culture and, you know, very strong cultures at that. What does speaking as a leader mean to you, Samar? That's a very interesting question. I think, uh, you know, all of these brands and organizations you mentioned, you know, have their own particular culture and perhaps tweak on a style. Uh, but you know, the training I, I received, you know, from, from the early days, A, came initially from you know, my willingness and enthusiasm to, to speak up. And you know, as I started my initial career, I was just a junior person sitting in a, in a team meeting, uh, willing to stick my hand up and, and ask questions, and then gradually getting the responsibility to start to present to the team, often to people who are older than you, 
a good speaker is a good speaker, regardless of, of the organization, whether they're acting as, as an individual, whether they're coming in as an external facilitator to a small company, a large company, there's a certain style and confidence, delivery, cadence, et cetera, which is, which is expected. And that doesn't really change. I think that's essentially always been the same. And so we talk about, you know, rhetoric, uh, you know, in the ancient Greek sense, which was taught, you know, to uh, mostly young boys at that time who were trained to become politicians, the act of standing up and talking and to be heard, be it in the Roman Senate or to be a Roman general or whatever, you had to learn that because the style was consistent, right? And the people would respect uh, your style. So being or lacking confidence in front of an audience will erode people's trust or belief in your message. That's really interesting. It really makes me think about how leadership and communication and speaking to an audience has evolved over time. The core values and the core qualities that make up a good speaker, being able to speak up, as you said, I love that, the enthusiasm and spirit and motivation to speak up and be heard, that remains constant. But I do feel like styles have definitely evolved and changed. There was a time when leaders would, you know, get up behind a podium or on a stage and there would be this clear difference of status between them and the audience. And they were talking to or addressing an audience without necessarily thinking of it as a conversation. And I do think that that has changed now, especially because now you're not just standing on a stage. Sometimes you're speaking into a camera, like both of us right now. Sometimes you're, like you said, in a hybrid environment where you're in a Zoom meeting and you still have to present and lead, but you're not exactly up on a stage. You're not exactly addressing a bunch of people that are looking at you with eagerness and giving you that authority by default. For me, it's that that feeling of having authority by default that has remarkably changed over the years. Yeah, I think um, I, I agree, agree with that in the sense that, yes, was a bit, the subtlety in terms of styles and how uh, it's brought into has, has adjusted, particularly with technology and working in a hybrid environment. But if I think, you know, all, all those organizations, specifically those brands that I worked with, um, we never really had a, an experience where a leader, a CEO, or you know, uh, uh, a senior manager was sort of in that sort of public speaking sense, uh, was sort of appearing to be dictatorial or whatever. I think all those organisations had had the values of you know uh, trying to build a collegiate team and appearing equal. But yes, in that specific instance. Um, they also need to convey, you know, their, their authority and their credibility that, yes, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to help. I'm here to lead, you know, here's the plan of action guys. Let's, let's talk about it, et cetera. There's kind of that, that connection. And so when it comes to speaking as a leader, what I'm referring to, you know, is, is the actual delivery itself in terms of the content needs to be authoritative, but in terms of the connection with the audience and being open to take you know, questions and engage with people and be approachable as a personality, there's a huge spectrum of having to do something because someone has a positional authority to someone actually respecting you <laughs> as a leader. So you can speak as much uh, as you like, but until you have established a rapport 
uh, and built that sort of uh, connection with those individuals, they will tend to do by default the bare minimum that they have to do, you know, to get to the end of the day. That's such a great example because actually at the time of us recording this, I'm going to be publishing the next episode, uh, which is episode six of this podcast. And I actually talked to uh, Jamie Martin. He's the director for the Center of Australian Army Leadership. And he talked about something very similar. He was thrown into a position of authority and leadership straight out of his training program in his early 20s. And his journey was exactly like you described, that he had the positional authority, but he had to still earn his authority in the minds and hearts of the people that he was leading. So absolutely agree with you on that, that it's that balance that you have to strike between authority, credibility, and relatability. And on a similar note, this is a classic question that I ask everyone on the Speak as a Leader podcast. I would like to know if you had a switch flip moment. So did you have a moment in your career where you suddenly realized that, oh, I'm no longer just an employee. I'm no longer just a boss or a manager. I've become a leader. Was there a moment, a particular project, a particular time that you remember where you had this switch flip? Um, yes, there are a couple of uh, switches like that. So the switch moment came, you know, when I applied for the job um, at Deloitte and uh, I was very pleased I got the interview and I thought, right, okay, I went, I took a week off work uh, before the interview and I spent a lot of time researching the interview methods and te techniques. Uh, how does, for example, Deloitte interview candidates at this level? What is expected? In fact, it was a kind of a full day selection center. Uh, type deal. So you came in at seven in the morning and you had interviews and then you had to do practical exercises. You had to do all sorts of things. And then a team exercise at the end of the day. So this was the, the structure. So I found out all the information I could about how each exercise worked and the types of questions they were asked. And I practiced and practiced and practiced. Absolutely. I locked myself away in a room and just practiced you've got 40 minutes to do it. Can I do it in 35 and so on, right? Timing myself and you know, take this extremely seriously. Now, when it comes to leadership aspect, that was tested um, at the, the last exercise of the day, which was you were put into a room with all the other candidates around a sort of boardroom table and you were given a, a problem statement, you know, to uh, company X has this problem and there's there's a proposition A and B, which one is better? You know, you need to come up with a proposal for that. So they'd give that to you and there'd be, you know, 10, 12, 15 candidates around the table, sort of apprentice style. And then the partners of the company uh, who are potentially recruiting you would be sitting on the outside of this table, watching you, taking notes. So I knew this was going to happen. And so I prepared a strategy for that. Which I also knew that the other candidates are going to be, uh, some of them are going to be very mouthy, some of them are going to be very aggressive, some of them are going to be a little bit quiet. How can I claim leadership and demonstrate to the group of partners sitting around the table on the outside that I am a leader? So my stratagem was as soon as they put the paper down and said, okay. Uh, here's a problem statement. You guys have got uh, 25 minutes to discuss this, to come up with a solution. As soon as uh, they said go, 
And then the debate started between the the strong uh, kind of extroverts in the room. And I think it should be this, and here's the right way to do that. And so I let the argument run for about you know one minute. So I was like, no, 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 this is completely wrong. It has to be this, this way, this way. And I think it's this. So what I did while everyone's watching was I stood up in the middle of the room. I stood up. I grabbed one of the, the board markers, pens on the table. I walked to the front of the room. I said, thank you, John. That's a great idea. Let me write that down. Now, Jill, what's, what's your suggestion on that? Okay, let's put these two together like this. Uh, well, what do you think, Ben? Well, what do you think, Jack? And so on. Went round the table like that. Okay, yeah, great, 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 great. So I think we can see, you know, trend building here that A seems to have more pros and cons and so on. Um, and the second that I did that, everyone gravitated in the room to look at me. So my strategy was to speak as a leader by holding the pet. There's something that I'd researched was that the, the symbol of authority was holding the pen. And without thinking about it, all these other people now suddenly wanted to filter through me. So I became the custodian of the pen and they had to convince me of the idea to get it written down. <laughs> mm. So this was very a, a strategic. Flip, exactly a flip situation that uh, happened in that very split second where I separated from, from the crowd to act as, as a leader in the room. There was no reaction from anyone, their partner sitting around the room. They're just scribbling on their, uh, on their notepads. Uh, they said, okay, thank you very much. Thank you for coming today, everyone. And we'll be in touch. And um, I left the building. I remember vividly I had to catch the train back home. And I was thinking, oh, I put so much effort into that. I was re ready to, to collapse. <laughs> I've been preparing for a week like mad and then went through this. And I was like, I hope I didn't overdo it. I don't know. I don't know. So I, um, I, I took the tube down. I think it was going to Victoria Station or something. And I, I got out just about to board the train and my phone rang. And I remember uh, uh, a man's voice. He said, hello, Samar. I'm like, yes. We said, oh, I'm, I'm the lead partner. I was in the room with you this afternoon. I was like, oh, yes, uh, thank you. How are you? Said, yes, I'd like to offer you the role immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I was, like, I was like, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so. I'll take it. Yes, I'll take it. Absolutely. So that's, <laughs> that, that was my, my entry in, into, into Deloitte. And you know, ever since then, I've always used that, uh, that strategy. It still works uh, even now. Um, having a sense of the room, reading the room, and then speaking as leader also means, you know, uh, showing that, that authority and seizing the pen metaphorically or physically you know, uh, actually works. So there's a flip moment for you. <laughs> what a fantastic flip moment that was. Thank you for sharing that with us and super memorable too. Mm. I, I definitely feel you know, a sense of kinship with you as you told that story and as you've told some of the other stories of your life, I feel that perhaps we can both relate to this feeling of there always being this little voice inside us of that is convinced that we are leaders and that we want to lead, but it's about finding the right opportunity and about proving to whoever matters that we're up for the challenge 
and so much more. I've experienced that a lot of my life where I've, I've never felt doubt that I am a leader. It's just about making sure that no one else feels that doubt. I don't know if you can relate to that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you have to feel it in your bones, right? I used to describe that, particularly my ambition to, to join Deloitte was something that I felt so so keenly. It felt like uh, electricity in, in, in my, um, uh, throughout my nervous system. You know, that sort of imposter syndrome at that point in time, you know, is, is not necessarily there. It's like, no, I believe in this. I prepared for this. Just like, you know, uh, an athlete has prepared for, for that particular game. Now, I like, like to watch, you know, big sporting events with my kids or you know, watch YouTube reruns of, uh, of great Olympic moments with my kids. And I'll say, look, actually, what you're seeing here, you, you see that particular race, that particular event, you see the individual standing there, right? That person has spent their whole life working towards that very second. Do you, do you appreciate that? You have to understand that, right? Whether it's a big Wimbledon final or whatever, that first service coming in the final from that player, the second that happens is the full affirmation of a life that has gone into that very moment. So uh, when that individual was, was a child, somebody helped them, their parents encouraged them, went to a million practices and you know did all of that through school and high school and injury and ups and downs. And every single day they worked and worked and worked to achieve just to be there in that room, on that track, on that tennis court, that precise second, right? What happens after is then entirely up to them, but entire lifetimes of work has gone into it, right? So, so in the same way, you know, you're going to cross that threshold, you're going to bring that energy. And then what comes are always a unique set of situations. Some of you, you might have anticipated, some you don't. Uh, some are good experiences, some are bad experiences, uh, uh, had all of those, right? Uh, but now you have achieved that. And then sometimes, you know, you have a good day and a bad day, but at least you've crossed that threshold that yes, you're playing in that particular league, you're playing in that particular situation or that particular opportunity you wanted to be a part of. So that's great. But the conduct and delivery and execution of that uh, can vary. And some things are always out of your control. Uh, so the latter is then, then maturity. Right, so just uh, pure pure belief uh, in yourself it will get you so far, right? So that's the training part of that. Yes, I'm going to work, I'm going to study, I'm going to do whatever. I'll get into the room. What happens then and how well you do at it, you know, is a function of many things. The people in the room, your teamwork ethic, uh, the good, bad, ugly of that situation, the things that are not in your control. Um, and, you know, I have failed at things. Things don't always work out, uh, you know, have clients who weren't always 100% happy with, with whatever. And it's the same every day, right? This, this happens. But with maturity, you learn to manage those peaks and troughs, but try and keep your trajectory, the average, you know, still still trending upwards. Um, and that's, that's a consistent balance we all have to manage. I love the idea of there being these specific moments, which make you realize that everything that you've worked for so far in life has led you up to this moment. And being cognizant of that, telling yourself that story for me is also really important. So getting that external validation and credibility, great, but also getting that internal validation and using all these opportunities to keep building that narrative for your own self. 
And that for me is like my relationship with public speaking, for example, where you take these specific moments and you really make sure that you tell yourself afterwards that whatever you did, however you did on that stage in front of all those people, it was because of your hard work. It was because of your effort. And of course, like you said, luck and other factors always come in. But taking the opportunity to really keep building that narrative for yourself, for me, has been crucial. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, right? And um, it does it does take a village, right? And any, any success, I, I couldn't say it was entirely of my own making because I had the support of my family in particular and uh, my, my father and my parents, you know, worked extremely hard to make sure I had the right opportunity and uh, put me in the right schools and so on. And when I failed, make, made sure that I was able to learn from that uh, and get the right, right help at the right time, you know, when I was, uh, when I was younger. Uh, but that also then instills confidence, right? Not everyone has those opportunities. Not everyone, um, you know, has the right, uh, right set of circumstances. So, you know, wherever then, you know, following on from that thought is I try and offer assistance and help to, to anyone who asks for it. Uh, I've helped many people throughout my career, whether it's, it's coaching or doing CVs for them or giving them interview advice and, and, and so on. And so I've done a lot of that in, term, in terms of to return the, the karma, if you like, right? So uh, yes, it's taken good luck, it's taken uh, fortune, not only my good luck, but for example, for, for many others to be there at the right time, uh, to have the circumstances where they can perhaps offer help or assistance, uh, which has made a huge difference, right? The, the advice, the sage advice of, you know, um, a family friend or you know, the support or help of a particular mentor at the right time makes a huge difference. And that can really shape your chances of, of success or learning from, from failure. That's very gracious of you. And you're right. You're completely right. It's we stand on the shoulders of giants. And the more we recognize that, the more we want to pay it forward. And that is the beautiful thing, especially as you, you know, climb up the ranks, especially as you become more of a leader, you understand how much your voice means to other people. And you start using that voice to spread positivity, to help people out as much as possible. And that, that is amazing. I really want to talk about the personal branding aspect here, because Samar, you're one of those rare people. You're you're a rare breed because you are completely immersed in the corporate world, but you've taken the time and the effort to also build your personal brand outside of your company. You've you know spoken at LinkedIn events. You have a podcast. You've been interviewed. You've really taken steps to create that image to create that brand. So the first question I want to ask you about that is, do you remember the first time that you were on a public stage, whether it was, you know, an offline stage or an online one? Do you remember the first time that it was, it was a big stage or the stakes were high and you were doing this thing that was outside of your comfort zone? That's a good good question. I think, um, I'm trying to remember now, and I say uh, as a as a child, as a, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts, so I was in other sort of community things. My, my parents were very keen to encourage me into that. So I had sort of opportunities in, from that perspective to, to be present, to have an opportunity to speak up or to give a sort of presentation or talk or deliver something or do a, a poetry reading or something like that. Uh, you know, I can think of, for example, at primary school, going to sing Christmas carols to, to pensioners and, and uh, entertain them. 
Um, and these sorts of formative experiences at least got you used to uh, a situation of standing up, uh, you know, speaking or even singing in my case, um, and being being seen and getting a reaction from the audience, right? So uh, he was a choir boy for for, uh, for some time. So I'd done done those sorts of formative experiences. So that that certainly helped. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, perhaps in, in a professional setting, when when was the first time I was doing that? Um, again, probably uh, I can think actually when I finished my master's and I, I joined SAP actually for the first time uh, in the UK as an intern originally. I spent uh, almost two years there, first year as an intern and then uh, uh, working before I went to Philips. SAP sponsored, were kind enough to sponsor my, my dissertation on, on the topic of uh, customer relationship management. And I spent time in Germany researching that topic. Uh, now, the interesting thing was the topic that I researched was looking at a particular project that was done at the time. Um, and I was looking at how successful was that project and what were some of the issues or challenges with that, right? So that that was effectively the thesis. Why does this work or doesn't work? And I uncovered evidence that this particular project was not working so well. And so I had to, um, I gathered that those results through interviews and doing research and gathering stats and all of that, very, very thorough. I analyzed all of that um, and then I had to present it back to the stakeholders of that project. Also happened to be my boss's boss at the time. And my, found, my findings weren't especially positive. So I've spent you know, a month, two months preparing this presentation and I had to walk in, I guess, for the first time in a corporate setting uh, to answer your question in a boardroom. And they were sitting around waiting to hear my report and they think, great, you know, we sent this guy off to Germany. Uh, we paid for it. Uh, he's going to give us a glowing report. And I, <laughs> what I had to show was not necessarily uh, what they're expecting. And it wasn't necessarily a glowing report. I guess everything is fine and, and brilliant. And, um, you know, and I remember I got a visceral reaction from the my boss's boss. So really, no way. This, this is, uh, how can you say that? And, um, okay. <laughs> I think in, in the end, he, he, he took it in the spirit it was meant. But I think it was a kind of my naivete in... Um, handling these sorts of situations and perhaps not being uh, politically uh, aware. Okay, he has a lot of vested in this, you know, personally and his reputation in the company. And, you know, uh, he's done all of this and now I'm telling him that you know, his baby's ugly. He's not going to like it. Right, so, uh, so a couple of things. A, that was the first opportunity, I think, where I presented uh, in front of, you know, a senior leadership organization. I had to present that. So I think, Presentation-wise, I was prepared for that. I had to speak up and all the previous things I'd done led up to that moment. But the immediate feedback was not positive. And it wasn't, wasn't about my presentation skills or my speaking skills. It was the content of what I had to say. So that's good, right? No one is saying he, he can't speak or he, he's not credible. Uh, it was what I had to say had a reaction uh, or potential implications uh, that I had not quite considered in that content. So, you know, know your audience. So I said earlier, you're going to get these kinds of, you know, peaks and troughs and, and drop-offs. I haven't done almost the first time <laughs> delivering something like this. Um, okay, I've got to give the right sort of um, wrapper around this, right? Just, you know, perhaps soften certain messaging if 
not detracting from the truth, but don't just go in there straight away and say, yeah, this project you're working on for three years is not going as well as you thought, and here's 10 reasons why. Rather, you know, it's going well here, here, and here, and here are 10 things people say is absolutely great, but some things are not, not going well. Now, you're still conveying the same information, but just think about <laughs> in which sequence, in which order you're going to gonna, uh, say this. Yeah, learning what your audience is ready for mm-hmm. and what they're absolutely not ready to hear, and then being able to deliver those negative messages at times. It it definitely is an art and a skill. And also pre-aligning. That was definitely something that I learned in the corporate world, that if you pre-align with certain stakeholders, it makes the meeting go smoother. And thinking of, you know, speaking, um, actually, no, first I wanted to also check in with you. Uh, we're, we're on time. Uh, do, are you good for time? Can we do about 10 more minutes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, So I want to talk about the brand that you've built, especially the brand that you built outside of the company. Because when I first started working on my personal brand, I really didn't know what I wanted to stand for. And I guess I started working on this, you know, even before I did stuff online, because I was, you know, like you seeking opportunities to speak in public and at events, do trainings and presentations and workshops. And now, you know, probably hundreds of events and interviews and videos later, now I have a better idea of my voice, what I want to stand for, what I want people to remember after I leave the room what I want people to remember after they stop watching a video where I'm talking. So what does the Samar personal brand stand for? If you had to tell me, let's say, first in in three words, if you had to talk about your brand in three words, what would those be? That's a good question. I can't say I really kind of try to distill it into three three keywords. Um, But certainly a a professional, um, having integrity, and being accessible. So if I explain that a little bit, I mean, the professionalism comes from obviously having credibility, right? And having done, as you said at the start, you know, these sorts of roles, these sorts of organizations in several countries, from that comes comes credibility. So that, that's quite important uh, that yes, you are you know, credible as a speaker, you're credible as an authority on your subject. Um, and then, the, the second and third part is about you know being accessible that you can communicate but also open to to ideas and receive uh, criticism and also opening up to say yeah not everything goes well not everything goes right not everything is always a success the first time around it is okay to fail and so what I'm not trying to present as a brand is saying you know, I'm a par- paragon of virtue but yes I've done these things and that's my credibility but within those things some things go right and some things go go wrong and I'm happy to to discuss those and learn from those collectively with you right, so hopefully I can can convey that 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 brand value and the other wrapper around it that I've tried to create for example with my my strategy remix brand that I've created there's a kind of distinct offering something that's a little bit unique with a unique spin on that you know, representing the appropriateness of you know my my generation my experience you know I'm not competing with you know tiktokers uh, I'm sort of representing a certain uh, brand of professional uh, with you know a long memory. You know, I've been around uh, working for you kind of say 15 years. It's been almost 25 actually. Uh, so a quarter of century of of experience, 
right? Um, which uh, can be distilled, you know, hopefully for, for the wider benefit. You know, there's something learned along that journey. Uh, good things happen, bad things happen, uh, but hopefully I can share that. And so with the strategy remix type of um, brand that I've, I've been creating, yes, this strategy, yes, this corporate stuff, there's also a sense of fun and you're remixing that and looking at what happened in the past and what's happening in the future and how can you remix that in a sort of you know positive way. I love that idea of wrapping things to make them more accessible, to make them more relatable to make them more attractive. And the idea of, of, you know, creating these wrappers or dressing things up has come up a few times in our conversation. And for me, it also resonates with the idea of creating a very specific persona when you talk on a stage or when you give an interview. And for me, I am all for this, you know, building and refining this personal brand like what you really stand for, being very sure of it and then understanding how to portray it. And when I talk to some of my clients about it, one of the first things they come up with is, oh, but I don't want to be fake, Nasheen. I don't want to be inauthentic. And the ironic part is that sometimes you want to be yourself when you're speaking in public. You want to be yourself when you're speaking on camera. And yet the more you want to be yourself, the more you feel like an imposter. I've definitely experienced that in the past. So have you ever struggled with the imposter syndrome when you're speaking to a larger audience? Generally not in the sense that I try to ensure that I know what I'm talking about. At least if you know your topic and your subject, you're not going to feel like like an imposter. So generally I don't necessarily have that sort of feeling. I think in terms of your uh, positioning and the, the way that you you talk and the type of you know, uh, cues you're giving, you know, uh, from how you speak, your cadence, your your accent. Again, I'm not trying to create anything necessarily false. Uh, so I think the lesson learned from that is you know, just just be yourself. You know, uh, so if you're being yourself and authentic, right? That's that's perfectly fine in terms of your content. If in terms of delivery to to be appropriate you have to adjust that style for that particular situation. That's perfectly fine. That doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change the content of what you're saying. It may change the style or the delivery or the props that you use. And sometimes I think people making that transition, like how you're speaking to a small group or a large group or online, a hybrid situation or to a, a younger group or an older group or in a formal setting, if you're, you know, as I have on occasion, I had to uh, address a government minister or, or somebody like that, there's certain formality expected. Uh, obviously, you need to adjust to that that situation, right? But you're going to be as um, you know, hopefully, come across as credible and and yourself. Um, so I don't think I've I've ever felt that per se uh, that I've been out out of my depth or trying to create something that that I'm not. That's a great response. Content versus delivery. I really like that being authentic in your content, but then knowing how to adapt your delivery, how to amplify a certain part of yourself, how to play down a certain part of yourself, depending on the situation. And it's really linked with that concept of maturity that you were talking about earlier, I think. The more you expose yourself to different environments, different people, different setups, different cultures, the more nuanced you get in the way that you approach all kinds of communication. So nothing can really replace that experience. 
but you can learn to do it faster. I think if you understand, if you truly gain an understanding of who you want to stand for, what you want to stand for, who you are, and how you want to really portray it. So those, that's, that's a really excellent point. Thank you for, for bringing that up. And sorry about getting getting the the twenty five years wrong. You look really young for your age. I think that's what it is. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But, the, the years have been kind, you know. But uh, think about it. My I started my first job uh, in nineteen ninety seven. Oh wow! I was in high school then. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So I've I, I gave a clue to say. Look, uh, when I started, people were still still using. Um, uh, OHPs, overhead transparencies. You know, there's those really things with plastic, and we used to. Uh, I, I was one of the one of the the Gen Zs at that time, uh, relatively speaking. Say, oh no, I can do it on PowerPoint, and then we have to go go to special printer, and we get the OHPs printed out uh, in black and white, and you take them like this and stick them down on, on a projector, right? So if anyone's listening uh, who's from that generation, you'll, you'll remember that I used to go into a customer with a stack of these sorts of things. Uh, and in fact, I think I was one of the first people at my university, even though I was doing computer science, uh, to have a laptop, which was kind of gifted by my dad at the time, which was a huge deal in the <laughs> in the uh, late 90s. Uh, and actually, I gave a presentation with that and even the staff, wow, wow. where'd you get that from? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Very cool. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been around, but the, the benefit of that is uh, the purposes of, of sharing experience, right? And back to your previous point is that, you know, uh, you can bring some some credibility and, it's all, you know, there were ways of doing things in the past that aren't necessarily relevant or appropriate now, but the experience, particularly to your concept of speaking as a leader, I think as I said at the start, there's a certain consistency around that, right? And the experience that comes with that, as I said, in in difficult situations, in positive situations, in you know, speaking in a hybrid environment, speaking in a ballroom. I'll, I'll share one more story with you uh, just as, as we wrap up. So around a couple of years ago, two years ago, three years ago, I think just before the pandemic, actually, I was invited to uh, to give a, uh, a keynote at a big industry event um, in, uh, in another country. Uh, I, I flew in for that event, uh, and the event was in a, a big uh, hotel ballroom. There must have been several hundred people there. I was a keynote speaker, um, and you know, so there's a big introduction, rah rah, lights and music and all of that. And I called out my name. And I, I came on stage, you know, to give my big keynote, and uh, behind me was you know, was a big a uh, big screen, a huge screen, you know, so. Uh, where my my slides and everything were set up to to play, and as I was walking on stage, they gave me a clicker and uh, the microphone and all of that, and said, "Okay, you know, you're good. Off you go." As soon as I got on stage, and as soon as the intro ended, right, I had to press the clicker, and my slide would appear, and I could start delivering the content. So I got on the stage and pressed the clicker, and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Nothing. The screen was 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 black. Nothing moved. I've got all these people. I've got the lights bearing down on me on the stage. I can just see the bright lights, the halo effect that kind of gives you. And these people dotted around the room looking straight at me. And it's just crickets, just tumbleweed, like standing there and pressing the button and nothing is happening. <laughs> nothing is moving. Um, so I'm like, okay. So um, I said, um, so I just made a joke. I said, 
hey guys, so you know, uh, thank you for kind of attention, you know, but that's life in the technology business. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. You know, I'm I'm and I'm there representing this big global brand, and it didn't work. So I, I got a good laugh out of that, and I said, you know, so no, okay, so just while the the guys are resetting the system, let me talk to you about it. A, B, and C. And in fact, I delivered most of that presentation without those props that I had prepared, right? So it completely fell away. So now suddenly everything was on me. Uh, I didn't have uh, uh, the, the backing of any material to point to. I just had to replay it off the top of my head, all the points I wanted to make. But fortunately, I had obviously prepared. I knew the topic well, so able to speak with authority. And in fact, I think that actually worked in my favor in that particular situation because now the attention was on me. People aren't necessarily looking at the fancy graphics and the slides and the animations. They're looking at me. Uh, and so therefore, I was able to then leverage that, which I wasn't prepared for, but now literally take the spotlights uh, and, mm -hmm. and deliver the content, which is you know, well, well received. But, you know, these things happen. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's such a fantastic example because it's the kind of example that makes people literally, you know, tremble and shake. And it's the one thing that people are scared of. At the beginning of different presentations, you always see these speakers kind of fumble around. And sometimes where when the tech is, is a little bit fussy, they're just kind of standing there and waiting. And that is time wasted. You're so dependent on these tools that you that you're using that you're not really understanding that what you're there for is to present what the people are there for is to see you not to see the powerpoint you could have sent that to them in an email yes. and the fact that after all these years of experience you're now at a point where you don't need that powerpoint necessarily it's in your head and the fact that you're able to see these positives that you're able to see, oh, this is actually good because now the eyes are on me. Now I get to build my, my brand and my reputation in a way more meaningful way is, is exactly what I want people to take away. You know, that the PowerPoint, you're not there as a PowerPoint deliverer. You're not there as a PowerPoint reader. You're there to present and share your experiences using whatever tool you've chosen to use. So great great example um, to wrap it up. I have one last question for you if you have a few minutes. Mm -hmm. When it comes to building your personal brand, a lot of people hesitate putting, it, putting themselves out there, especially when it comes to creating video content, being in interviews, doing podcasts, doing things that really puts their face, their image, their opinions out there. A lot of people hesitate. And there are a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons that I've seen is that people are very concerned about what their offline network will think about them, what their family and friends will think about them. And especially in the tech world, there is kind of like this, this bro culture of, you know, making fun of people that seem to be trying too hard. And I know a lot of people hesitate because they feel that, oh, what are my peers going to say? They're going to think that I just want to be the next influencer. They're going to make fun of me. So did you ever experience that as, you're, as you've been building your personal brand? Not too much. I think, um, in fact, all my colleagues that I worked with have been very encouraging and positive. And actually, you know, I really started this online thing. I've always been on LinkedIn, always doing stuff here and there, but it really kicked off during the pandemic for me because, you know, I was doing a lot of public speaking uh, before the pandemic. I was traveling various cities and doing keynotes and uh, all sorts of 
meetings. Uh, but after the pandemic, I you know, obviously had lockdowns here and we had to do everything in a hybrid way or online. So I thought, okay, the way I can reach my audience now is, is through this online medium, uh, through Zoom. Uh, but then it's very important for me to make sure I convey uh, the right image. And so, uh, you know, I invested in and got the right advice to set up the right equipment and the lighting and the sound and set up a studio at home. So that what I was very conscious of is that from an image perspective is that, you know, when I appear on screen, I want to be in control of that. I want it to look sharp. I want it to look good, et cetera. And I will, I will stand out in the minds of, of the audience. And a lot of that sort of, you know, laptops at the wrong angle, badly lit with, you know, a cheap pair of headphones. It's like, you know, people got very tired of that very quickly. So I taught myself a, these techniques. Um, and then B in terms of when it came to building the brand, was okay, now I need to start creating content because then people, if I can't go visit people in person, I need to create awareness about what it is that I'm doing, A, what I'm doing for my company, but B, later on, myself as an individual. Uh, and the latter part of that has been separating the two things. Is yes, there's always stuff I'm doing as part of my day job, and I have to do that, right? That, that's important. Uh, but also equally important is that I'm also an individual. I also have uh, my own opinions. And um, if I'm willing to talk about them, I've actually found that people are willing to listen. So yesterday, for example, um, I did my live podcast on LinkedIn on the Strategy Remix. Um, and I had, um, I think, around 140, 150 people join that live. Around 40% of those were colleagues. And almost all of them messaged me afterwards to say that, that they really, really like the content, right? And we're talking about podcasting and public speaking. Um, and I have never had any sort of pushback or negativity that why are you doing this or, or whatever. Um, rather the reverse happens, which is actually uh, if I go to the office, even if I meet customers or whatever, people see me, people know me, even if I go, go to, to dinner parties or whatever. People, oh yeah, no, I saw that. I saw that. I know you, right? Uh, people I haven't met. So I've been in a couple of situations where I met customers for the first time. I said, oh no, I, I saw that, that figure that I did. Uh, that was really good and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they will spend time. It's happened to me several times now. Uh, people I haven't met before will end up explaining back to me or to someone else I'm standing with. Oh no, I, I saw someone at this event online or he did this or that. Um, and you know, he's really good. He knows his stuff and that's why he's, you know, he's really good at this. So, you know, so far, it's always been a, a virtuous uh, circle. Um, then it spins off, you know, as you get more experience, it's okay. Apart from just creating content is understanding how the medium works and you know, understanding the LinkedIn algorithm and creating different types of content, you know, podcasts versus videos versus articles versus posts and all of that sort of stuff, right? And so if you can master that, I think it's an essential skill, to be honest, because you need to position your own brand, your company's brand, and be visible. Uh, and often, the statement often used when people ask me about that is, what comes up if you Google yourself? If you put your name into Google, what comes up? Do you want to be in control of that? The very first page, if you Google my name, what will you see, right? You will see my, my content, actually. Uh, you'll see my, my LinkedIn posts and so on. You'll see my YouTube videos. I have created that. I have curated that specifically for that purpose. 
So if anyone Googles my credibility, they will see that, yes, this is content I've created, not necessarily what other people are creating about you or what has tangentially kind of entered the, the metaverse, if you like, or leaked out because your name is on some document or, or on some website. So to be in control of your own image uh, is, uh, is an important benefit, I think, of, of this content creation. And the, the final thing to say is that uh, I shared this podcast yesterday. I think I was looking into this, that uh, of people who want to write a book, for example, some survey said you know, about 20% of the population uh, on average, I think it was a US survey, would like to write a book. Okay. But actually only 0.002% of the population actually write a book. Right. What that means, the implication of that, as I shared on my podcast yesterday, was that what you see on the New York Times bestseller list or whatever may not necessarily actually be the very best ideas or the very best stories that anyone has thought of. It's just that the 0.02% actually got around to writing it down and publishing it. But that doesn't mean for all time it's the greatest literature. There might have been many other great authors or potential authors or people many times better than Shakespeare or whatever that just never wrote it down. So if you don't do it, uh, somebody else will, and they will take take the plaudits. And your ideas, your perspectives, your experience may be much richer. And the world, uh, in some ways, may miss the opportunity to have heard your voice. Those are such excellent reasons. You're, you know, you're one of those perfect ambassadors, I think, for creating your personal brand because the things you touched upon are just spot on being able to be in control of what people see, because you're right, people will see something. They are going to see something when they Google your name, whether you're going for your next interview, whether you're asking for investment for your startup, whether you want to land a client, they're going to Google you and they're going to see and read whatever is out there. And the moment you start consciously building your personal brand and putting yourself out there, you are more in control. And why would you not want to do that? So it's a no-brainer when you think about that. And I love the second point that you raised, that all of us have so many experiences that we can share. Why would you not want to do that? Why would you not want to leave a legacy where people remember the ideas the experiences, the things that you shared with them? Why would you want to take them with you to your grave? It sounds like such a waste. Yeah. So it's it really is a win-win. I, I, I definitely agree with you there that building my personal brand has been one of the most rewarding experiences and journeys I have been on in decades of my professional and personal life. And it, it really is something that keeps on giving because once you put count content out there, it also becomes evergreen. People can look it up days, weeks, months, years later and say, oh yeah, Samar, you were in that podcast. You, know, you were in that interview. I saw this video of you. Yes. And what a great way to have your reputation precede you. No, so. Exactly, right? It's there. And uh, again, I'm sometimes surprised people will meet me. It's, oh no, I saw that. I saw that. I saw it last week and I did that a year ago or two years ago and people are still still consuming it, still seeing it. And just the very act of creating content, and for example, I focus a lot on LinkedIn, um, is that um, just the act of doing that. Remember, people are are scrolling through feeds uh, and so on. They, they will just see, uh, for example, they will just see that you've created something. They will see that you are uh, present. Even if they don't necessarily interact with that content, if they don't 
uh, leave a like or leave a comment or even watch, you know, your 30 second, one minute, five minute video, they'll just be aware that you're present. And so one important strategy is yes, you are present, you're, you're, you're seen regularly and people know, know that, right? <laughs> um, and they, they will automatically have uh, uh, an image of you to say, yes, you know, you're a creator, you're talking about this topic, you have a sense of authority. And they'll ask you other questions. I was in the office yesterday and someone said, oh, I haven't seen you for a while, but I, I saw this on LinkedIn. How did you do that? How'd you make this? How'd you do that? Um, you know, uh, what software did you use? And you know, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. P- people are thinking, even if not necessarily absorbing what it is that particular topic you're talking about, it may not be of necessary direct interest to them, but they will see that you're doing something. Yeah. And being visible mm. now in an age where people see and consume so much data all the time, being visible and being top of mind is priceless. So yes. definitely that's those are great thoughts to leave our audience with. Thank you so much, Samar, for taking the time, for sharing your experiences, your stories. It has been a fascinating conversation and I really want to talk to you again at some point. I feel like we could talk for a very long time <laughs> on personal branding, but also speaking as a leader and all the leadership lessons that you've learned in your wonderful 25 years of (laughs) your professional life and journey. So thank you again so much for taking the time and for speaking to me. Most welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for listening all the way till the end. I am super grateful for your support. If you like this episode, please take a minute to leave a five-star review. It would mean the world to me. To know about how I help leaders speak fearlessly, you can check out nsheen.com. That is the first letter of my name, N for Nasheen, with a sheen like Martin and Charlie. See you in the next episode. Till then, speak fearlessly. Speak fearlessly.